And we are now joined with E.D. Hirsch, Jr., who is our guest for the full two hours. Uh, good afternoon, sir. Hello, Milt. I haven't talked to you in, in quite a number of years. Well, as a matter of fact, it figures about 28 years, but I'll round it out to 30. <clears throat> and that shows up in a little introduction I have written, which I now propose to read. Uh, this is the program today that asks this question. How did a genial and rather bookish professor of English literature, particularly interested in hermeneutics, Peren Herma Watt, uh, and uh, teaching on a rather bucolic southern campus, how did he become the most controversial figure in American educational theory and uh, remain that for virtually 30 years from then till the present moment? And that's you that I'm talking about. What happened to alter your career in that way? Well, I, I date it to one particular experience I had. My, as you say, my uh, earlier interest was in hermeneutics theory of interpretation, which in, in a way is just theory of reading. But how do you understand what you're reading? And uh, when I was uh, doing some experiments at a community college in Richmond, Virginia, having done some similar experience, uh, experiments back in the University of Virginia, I uh, found that the disadvantaged students in a community college could read simple texts just as well as uh, the UVA students could. But when it came to texts that demanded a little bit of shared background, um, such as who won the Civil War and what the that uh, who who surrendered to whom at Appomattox Courthouse. Well, at that stage, uh, the community college students could not read very well, and uh, I, I won't obviously go into the details of the experiment, but it was was clear that they were being cheated in in school, and a lot of the references and and communications that you and I carry on uh, unthinkingly. Uh, which just pass right over the heads. So I thought uh, that I had better uh, do something about this if I if I possibly could. It was quite a shock to me. Um, I have a story to tell you, uh, which involves you and your influence <clears throat> upon me. Uh, you reported uh, your thinking on these matters uh, in uh, the first of a series of books, and that first one was titled Cultural Literacy. Uh, what the argument is, basically, we'll review shortly. Um, but um, uh, that was published, I think, in 1987. And on that date, or in that year, you came on the radio program I was then doing at another station. And we talked about it, just as we're going to be doing today. Um, and, of course, you had been testing cultural literacy, uh, whose basic comes, and the basic concept there is there are all sorts of things that common readers and common citizens um, ought to know if they want to understand even what they read in the newspapers or what's happening, or what they hear on the radio or television, and what's happening in the world around them. And lots of them don't really have that degree of cultural literacy. And you gave a list of various items that are basic to American cultural literacy. Um, the difference you found between the knowledge of your University of Virginia and your Richmond uh, 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 students uh, essentially a black middle class versus 
uh, rather a white middle class versus a black working class population. Those differences um, were, as you say, uh, essentially visible in the absence of certain cultural items that should be part of the general repertoire of all literate Americans. And one item was the Civil War. You found that your VA students, your Virginia students, could uh, tell you uh, who lost to whom and uh, what happened at Appomattox Courthouse and so on. I need to tell you that uh, shortly after you did that program with me, and it aroused my interest a great deal, as did the book that we were discussing, I decided to work up my own little cultural literacy exam and to start giving it to my own students. Um, And I did that usually on the last day of the semester with the largest course that I taught in the group of two or three courses I was teaching in those days. And this was the uh, course um, introducing them to social psychology, that being my field. One of the 10 cultural literacy items I had on that exam, and I've given it many times since, uh, was simply what are the dates of the American Civil War? Asking the students to simply fill in the dates, 1860 uh, to 1865 or 1861 to 1865. And I found that maybe only one out of 20 could put it in the right decade. Uh, And uh, all the other 19 had it wrong or just didn't answer because they simply didn't know. That was University of Chicago, which supposedly is at least as elite or at least as um, uh, upper middle class in its student composition as was the University of Virginia. Cultural illiteracy of that sort, uh, by the way, some of the other items on that test, I'm going on rather long, but I want to set this before you for your further commentary. Some of the other items on that test were, who was the king uh, executed in the French Revolution? What are the dates of the American Civil War? What is the capital of Finland? Name two books by uh, English authors of the ni- in the 19th century. Who composed the opera Tosca? Um, name one a book title by Saul Bellow. Who wrote the Critique of Pure Reason? and of two or three other items, making a total of 10. Strangely, almost all of the students could name Immanuel Kant for who wrote the Critique of Pure Reason, but not one out of 20 could name a novel by Saul Bellow, who was teaching on that campus at the time, and not one out of 20 could name two authors uh, uh, in England uh, in the 19th century, and no one could uh, uh, tell us who wrote the opera Tosca, though one fellow won my heart by saying the opera Tosca, of course, was written by Toscanini. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, these weren't all the kinds of items that you used on your test. These were kind of focused on literature and music and things of that sort, except for uh, uh, the, uh, the capital of Finland. But um, it was dismaying to me. Uh, and mind you, this was a thing that I administered to my students for the first time around maybe 35 years ago, only a year or two after you and I first met. Uh, And I can tell you that until I was emeritized about seven years ago, I kept on using these items uh, with my largest class on the last day of the quarter and kept getting the same results. Uh, And and you didn't notice, did you notice any difference over the years? Yes, got worse. Essentially, uh, uh, I think... Maybe one put it in, uh, put the Civil War in the right decade, uh, some 
uh, in around the year 1990 or, or thereabouts, and uh, none were able to do it when I last gave that test perhaps seven years ago. And I was doing it virtually every year. Um, what it tells me is that even in the elite universities, we get students who uh, simply don't have, uh, haven't ascended to or haven't acquired that degree of cultural literacy that you say is essential to living a more or less modern, civilized adult life. Yeah, I, I, I certainly wouldn't blame the students themselves. No, I don't. I blame the lack. I blame the education, or rather, the lack of education in the secondary schools from which they came. Yes, and I I go because I'm interested in the social justice aspect of of that issue. uh, That is, uh, there's a correlation. As people have done some research correlating uh, broad cultural literacy tests with uh, income with college grades, mm-hmm. with in income, and uh, there's a high correlation, as you might expect. And that was the, the side of things that interested me most and concerned me most when I was... Uh, the, the idea that the children who do not grow up in, in a highly literate home environment are going to be cheated by the schools because the schools aren't providing that kind of knowledge to them, but what my, particularly uh, in the elementary school. What my little batch of data says to me, um, assuming that I've got sort of a legitimate uh, represent, representative sample of middle-class students uh, in that University of Chicago group, what this uh, suggests to me is that uh, the uh, elementary schools and secondary schools that my students went to before they came to the University of Chicago have caught up with the other schools in the ghetto, that is to say, <laughs> in, a do- in a downward ascent, or, yeah. d- or rather a, de- a descent. Right, right, because uh, the, obviously those those people became parents, and the children yeah. of those uh, students then would not also not know when the Civil War was fought. Now, we've already th- uh, used the term cultural literacy a number of times, and it is, of course, the title of your first uh, book for the uh, general public. Uh, but we haven't yet defined it. What does one really mean by cultural literacy, which you say well, is lacking in much of our education? I think we need to take. We we can get into the uh, cultural social dimension to 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 define that term. But I think there's a more fundamental uh, uh, language principle that I need to say a, a bit about to mm-hmm. make the, the explanation clear. And that is what what was discovered in the. Uh, early 60s, and uh, I, I happened to be in on that work uh, then, was that language uh, depends for its interpretation, just as you and I are now talking, on uh, background knowledge that is not stated. And it's that unstated information that makes the stated uh, clear and understandable. Uh, for example, we've talked about the schools. We, you gave a lot of examples of uh, there in, in your introduction that depended on your audience knowing quite a good deal. And that uh, unstated information is critical uh, to understand uh, understanding language in general. And that was being discovered in spades 
in the early 60s, and uh, there was a great deal of excitement about it in, in the field then called uh, psycholinguistics. Mm-hmm. And, and now just uh, just the general rubric is cognitive psychology. And uh, that insight meant that for a language community, to that is to for, for people to understand one another within a language community, you, you had to have a, a lot of shared unspoken uh, knowledge, uh, un, uh, unspoken background knowledge. And that became, uh, really everybody admitted that uh, after a, a decade or so of research, that background knowledge was critical to language. What wasn't accepted was the more uh, correct uh, implication was that uh, shared background knowledge, that is, that, that, that you and I have to share some of the same uh, points of background reference in order to make language understood uh, uh, between us. Well, if you're dealing with a whole national language, that has implications for a national culture, and that's a big leap, of course. But of course, there, there is a counter that can be made <clears throat> to the sort of complaint that I was just voicing, and which I think you uh, share. Uh, and it's this, the items I used, it could be argued, uh, would not be part of the general cultural literacy of the nation at this time. Uh, when I've talked about this and used this example in private conversation or even in some invited lectures I've given, uh, always somebody in the audience, usually a college student, would come up and say, well, I, did, I didn't know who composed Tosca, and that's not the music you should be asking about. These days, we don't listen to opera. We listen to, and, and he mentions some group and says, have you ever heard of them? And it's usually a rock group that I've never heard of beyond the Beatles and yeah, so on. I, I have sympathy with that counter-argument, yeah. uh, I have to say. So and, that was an incorrect item uh, included by me, perhaps. I, 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 I had, as I say, I, I have sympathy with that objection and with and even as it was being made against the particular list that I was using well because uh, because culture changes culture changes and also the the point of uh, the, the social or the political point that lay behind what got kept me going at this was the uh, social justice implication mm-hmm. uh, uh, that is I as long as the uh, the insiders, the the members of the club, know certain things, then those who are excluded, particularly because that means they're excluded from economic life as well, uh, they need to be clued in, and it's the duty of the schools to clue them in. That's a simple argument. Um, there was, uh, returning to the University of Chicago for a moment, where I spent uh, the larger portion of my career having... Uh, been kicked out of Yale after six-year assistant professorship and then going to Dartmouth and then being uh, invited to the University of Chicago. Um, and uh, uh, it, it ranks as a major American university and uh, has supposedly more Nobel laureates uh, who had some connection with the university, whether as undergraduates or as professors, than any other American university. But um, it could be argued maybe somehow all the same this reflects a provincial uh, uh, aberration. Maybe there's something about the atmosphere of Chicago, or maybe there's something about the fact that many of our students, 
and it's an international student body all the same, uh, did come from this region of the Midwest. So maybe uh, it's fluky in that regard in terms of the sort of sample that you've got. But uh, I think increasingly you find, as you talk with young folks in this country, whatever university you may be visiting, uh, that um, they don't really have as much as their parents had if the parents were college-educated, or even as you have if you're an advanced middle-aged or older uh, American college professor. It is as if it is evidence that something has gone out of the educational preparation of right. uh, the yeah. students today. Yes, that that's right. And and so it, it, the ignorance feeds on itself. Ignorance feeds on itself. And, and now I'm very highly concerned. This slightly changed the subject over to education, but it uh, it's very concerning to me that uh, the testing regiments now in, 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 in the uh, elementary schools are focused entirely on math and reading. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they assume, uh, it's, it's been assumed that reading is a kind of technical skill. And what my work and what anybody knowledgeable in the field will, will agree, to, uh, it, it, it says, is that uh, reading is, like language comprehension, it doesn't matter whether you're reading the, the, the words or hearing the, the words, you still have to have the appropriate background context. Now, what can be said of you and what has been said in politer terms by uh, certain critics is uh, you were and you remain a counter-revolutionary. The revolution you are acting against uh, was the move toward progressive education. Uh, We are about to pause for some commercials. When we return, that should be rather seriously examined. Uh, How we uh, theorize about the nature of education in this country and in this country's schools of education, most particularly perhaps Columbia University or the Bank Street School in New York or the many other education departments uh, in universities around the country. So, uh, theories of education and what uh, they have to do with the dearth in cultural literacy, as we continue right after this. My most welcome guest today is E.D. Hirsch. Uh, do you still use the junior? Yes. Uh, E.D. Hirsch, junior, who um, is now uh, Professor Emeritus of Education and Humanities at the University of Virginia, and is the chairman and founder of the Core Knowledge Foundation, of which we will want to talk shortly. Uh, his uh, general books, uh, the non-English uh, professorial scholarly uh, critical works, his books for the general audience uh, are Cultural Literacy. That was the first one, and it was on the New York Times bestseller list for a long, long time. Uh, then that was followed by The Schools We Need and Why We Don't Have Them, The Knowledge Deficit, and The Making of Americans. Now, I was just um, giving a simple historical uh, interpretation. Uh, is it too simple to be uh, granted as true that essentially you were revolting against what progressive education, so-called, had wrought in the American school system? You no, know, it's, it's very accurate. And in, in fact, uh, I've got uh, a, a book in, in press now, at least it's being considered by Harvard Press, uh, that is 
goes into some detail about uh, the the fallacies of progressive education and uh, and it, it, how we got to where we we are. Well, what were those fallacies, and how did they affect the, what really happened well, in the schoolroom? Yes, well, it, the progressive education was a was a tremendously influential movement. It, it took off from the Romantic period, actually, because it, it its its chief uh, influence was in early education, where instead of imposing a lot of book learning on children, uh, the idea was to let the child uh, develop naturally. And uh, that idea of natural development meant fit in very well with the uh, a general anti-bookish, anti-intellectual approach. Doesn't and that course, really, in a way, descend from the philosophical tradition begun by uh, Rousseau? Yes, and the, the the people that influenced the Americans in progressive education were actually uh, Rousseau was always honored, but he the the, the uh, immediate uh, people in the world of education who were influences from Europe were uh, Pestalozzi and, uh, and above all, Fribble, a man named Fribble, mm-hmm. who was uh, a disciple of Hegel's and who uh, was, a, <laughs> was a tremendous influence. And he, he essentially said, oh, you, you shouldn't impose anything on the child. You have to let the child develop naturally. And that, that idea of natural development uh, was I, probably the, the root idea of progressive education, but it came with another idea that was uh, equally pernicious, and that was uh, the idea that what you learned wasn't particularly important. It was the uh, the general skills you were acquiring. Uh, that came along uh, as early as 1910. Uh, Dewey wrote a book called How We Think, and uh, it, it pointed... And in its introduction, he said the new education is uh, trying to follow the the uh, in- instincts of the child, and therefore we have to teach different children yeah. a lot of different things. I've made too much mention already of uh, my institution, the University of Chicago. It's worth noting that at the beginning of his career, uh, John Dewey was an assistant professor at the University of Chicago before he was... A very influential one, yes. Yes. Had already started his lab school there. Exactly, the lab school to which, I must say, uh, my son uh, went, uh, though he seems to be fairly literate at the age of 50 or thereabouts. (laughs) Uh, But um, uh, teaching skills, uh, what were the names of those skills? Uh, well, Dewey, for Dewey, he, he then in 1910 called it the scientific method, but it really became uh, under the rubric of critical thinking skills and yes. problem-solving skills, and those are still very big in in the American education world. We are not uh, what's what's important about what's factually important can always be looked up. It said, but what's really important to to gain are critical thinking and. Uh, and uh, problem-solving skills. Now, I was a um, uh, a beginning elementary school student in New York City, where I was born, and at a very, and uh, many, many years ago, uh, since I'm by now a rather old fellow, uh, I went through, I learned reading, writing, and arithmetic, I suppose, uh, from my teachers. And I was drilled. I do remember uh, flashcards <laughs> Uh, with words that you had to uh, uh, maybe define or you had to spell or whatever, and uh, 
uh, simple uh, uh, addition or subtraction problems. I'm talking about the first grade. I'm talking about what you were doing when you were six years old. Uh, and you would just be taken through those rather rote performances, but it gave me uh, a certain easy fluency in adding and subtracting and even perhaps in uh, reaching for words that I need uh, because it was so habitualized in my early life. Right. Well, it's the kind of education that did work, and it, uh, and it educated whole generations of immigrants, Americanized them, and, and uh, was generally, actually, by 1940, um, in international comparisons, uh, American education was right at the top. In uh, both in uh, the quality of even as late as quality of students and also yeah. the, the uh, equity uh, how 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 close how well we were uh, gradually bringing up uh, uh, disadvantaged. Uh, That's even as late as 1940. If you, if you compare that to contemporary research, what do you find? Well, you find now in the PISA so-called PISA results, which are the, the critical ones. They're the, uh, the, the, they're the international studies for 15-year-olds. Those scores are uh, put us below the uh, average of developed nations. Uh, so we're, we're, we rank in the high 400s, with 500 being uh, the, the average. And uh, it, people, people say, well, we're 21st in reading and 23rd in math and and so on. But uh, those numbers are not as important as understanding that we're below the uh, international average of development. There's a, there's a study done years ago by a fellow named Stevenson, who then was uh, based at University of Michigan, as I remember it, <clears throat> on uh, math skills at the fifth grade level internationally. He had some five or six different countries in the sample and supposedly matched uh, class uh, groups uh, in each of those uh, five or six countries. And uh, one was the United States, and another country was Japan. Uh, Japan, I think, did better on math, and a, a standard test was given, uh, how you standardize across languages and so on. These are methodological issues, but it was a, a study quite competently done and uh, sampled, and it had classrooms at the fifth grade level, uh, some 20 from each, um, from, uh, each country. And the outstanding finding, which I've often quoted because it is so stunning, is that if you take the distribution in mathematical skill as tested among fifth-grade uh, Japanese classes, uh, they rank from 1 to 20. And the lowest-ranking Japanese class does better on that standardized international test than the highest-ranking American class. Ton yeah. Total non-overlapping distributions, as they yeah. say in statistics. Yeah, uh, and uh, it it got even worse when when Stevenson studied the eleventh graders. Yeah, and uh, so uh, yeah, it, it 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 and that went back. Uh, let's see, that was in the seventies, wasn't it? Uh, I think as early as that, probably uh, yes. Yeah, uh, and uh, up into the eighties, Harold Stevenson was a great researcher, and anyway, he, his work is very influential for me, and and. Uh, those international comparisons are very, very telling because where you the the basic reason that the Asian countries are now doing better in in math and reading than the Western countries in general 
uh, is progressive education. Uh, it never caught hold in uh, Asia. And uh, it caught hold. Uh, it wasn't just in America that progressive education uh, was so influential. It was also in, in Western Europe. I, I should tell you that um, when I talk to my <coughs> younger colleagues still uh, teaching uh, at the University of Chicago, um, they are usually quite enthusiastic about their Chinese students. And we've now got a very large contingent of students from mainland China. And I suppose uh, many uh, may come as well from the Republic of China offshore. But um, they, uh, they're there in large number uh, and they're paying their own tuition. Or rather, their parents are paying their own tuition. And generally they do uh, according to the observations of their teachers, particularly in the scientific uh, departments, but even in the humanities departments, they generally, uh, though English is not their original language, they generally do better than the, um, the the American counterparts in the same classes. Yes, but I, I think it, it, it's, it's important to understand that, that we did as, as well as Asian students did. Uh, At one time. A, a few decades ago. Yeah. And... Uh, and I, I, it was very good of you to pick out progressive education, uh, uh, that is a, a theory of education, as being the underlying uh, root difficulty uh, in, in the United States. It's not. There's a, there's a story that Saul Stern, who's uh, written very favorably about your work, um, uh, uh, tells in uh, one of his articles in City Journal about his son going to a well-known public school in Manhattan uh, and Stern and his wife, I guess, keep asking the, uh, their son, um, and I think he's a sort of fourth grade or fifth grade student by then, uh, what did you do in math today? And he says, well, we are very busy making the Japanese garden. And it turns out that the teacher had decided that um, the teacher was an enthusiast for Japanese gardens, and he had the class engaged in a great project making a Japanese garden, I suppose, out in the backyard of the public school. And he, when, uh, when Stern complained about this to the teacher, uh, his uh, response was, well, you can learn all the other skills through doing this. You have to think about uh, numbers uh, and how many things you're going to plant and so on. And all, any topic lends itself to acquiring the skills that a civilized person uh, needs. Well, that was the so-called project method. Yeah. That was the biggest selling uh, document. It was hugely influential. Uh, that phrase was coined by William Hurd Kilpatrick, who was a colleague of Dewey's at Columbia Teachers College. Uh -huh. And um, the project method, uh, you see, it fit in with the idea of doing what comes naturally. If, you learn, if you've learned these skills and these uh, facts naturally, then they will be better and, and preserved longer. It was all because of the assumption that, that nature would provide. And nature. Yeah. Well, if you're planting a garden, you might have to count the number of seeds. Uh, that's it. And yes. that's numerosity, so that's mathematics yes. of a sort. That's right. Yeah. yeah, but it turned out that it's not a very efficient way to learn anything. Hardly, hardly. <laughs> um, you've been calling for, essentially, I like the fact that you say of yourself you are, uh, by, you, you're, you were forced to become a, an educational conservative or a conservative concerning education, even though um, you are definitely 
uh, a liberal with regard to politics. So this is a kind of a discontinuity in where you put your loyalties. I'm not the only one. Uh, the, the, the most famous example is Gramsci. Uh, Antonio Gramsci, this genius of a, of a thinker and writer. Uh, and a Marxist scholar. And a, a Marxist, yes, yeah, absolutely Marxist. He, 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 we know all of his writings because he was put in jail by Mussolini. Yeah. Um, and uh, we have the notebooks from jail, which which only became uh, public after the after the war. And and one of the things he said in 1929 was that progressive education was a kind of church. Now this is 1929. Gramsci was saying this mm-hmm. that that had paralyzed educational thought, and, and it was particularly hard, of course, on, on, on the poor. Yeah. Uh, I'm so involved in this conversation, and, taking, and I'm being a little uh, too selfish. I'm talking more than I should, uh, because I've burned with uh, my own uh, petulance or my own anger at how poorly prepared um, my university students seem to be. Though, of course, they usually it's, there's remedy as possible, Remedial courses in English and I suppose in many other uh, uh, areas are common on uh, in the curricula of most universities these days, I think. And beyond that, they then enter the world. Very often the corporations that hire them, if that's where they're going, um, or else the graduate programs that uh, uh, admit them and try to shape them further, uh, do a good deal to r- correct for the inadequacies of the education up to that point. And sort of bring if them up they to have stuff. A reasonable, uh, Milt, if they have a reasonable foundation, um, I, I my emphasis it's because uh, high schools come just before universities that university uh, professors are very concerned about what students acquire in high school. Mm-hmm. But you, so you you have to be college ready now. That's the new byword. But but actually, to be college ready for every for every person who has. Uh, the potential, you need to be middle school ready. Yeah. You have to have a good elementary education. Yeah. And that's where I've put up most of my energies. I'm so invested in this conversation that I've totally abandoned my duties. I'm about 10 minutes late for some commercials. So quickly we pause for those and then directly back to E.D. Hirsch. And directly back to E.D. Hirsch as we go on in discussion of what's wrong with American education and what's being set right uh, through the programs that he and his colleagues have put forward. Uh, I must read you something I've got in hand. When I came in this morning, I asked my producer if we had, uh, just to find for me, uh, the Times or uh, the Wall Street Journal or whatever newspaper was available. Um, I got the Wall Street Journal. I was just paging through it. And there on the opinion, on the op-ed page, more or less, is an article by a, a good friend of mine, Joseph Epstein. You know Epstein, of course. Yes. A former professor, well, professor of English, now retired from Northwestern, and uh, really a leading essayist. Um, and uh, he's got, in today's uh, WSJ, the unstoppable appeal of, quote, going forward. And the question I raise, I want to read this to you and then ask you, what degree of cultural literacy would be required to comprehend and even to enjoy uh, the following. This is the opening of his column. Um, Politics, the conservative political philosopher Michael Oakeshott claimed, quote, is um, an uninteresting form of activity to anyone who has 
no desire to rule others, end quote. Difficult, make that impossible, to imagine a candidate coming before voters to announce that he really enjoys ruling. It turns him on, he announces, because he craves power. He would be written off straight away as an egomaniac, a danger, a potential tyrant. Politicians, therefore, need clichés more than the rest of us do, if only to hide their simple brute motives. Much better for them to say that they just want to move the country forward. In fact, they've been saying it over and over um, again. Going forward has been the political cliché du jour for many hours um, now, maybe even for an année or two. And he goes on. Uh, Would that be a challenge for the students you encountered back in Richmond so many years ago? Yeah, I mean, there there aren't any particular uh, illusions that, that, that I I caught. I, well, there's the use of French to begin with. I, I mean, the, the thing is that, that what you don't want to do is underestimate the intelligence of the student or the reader, but you it's hard to uh, in in the United States now to over uh, uh, to underestimate their uh, their information. But, but in mean, this in this thing, there the style is rather playful. And yeah. uh, it's conversational almost. Yes, but very yeah. it's very well wrought in terms of the structure of the sentences. Yeah, it's it's, it's right, and it's I don't think that's too hard to understand. Give, give Joe, Joe Epstein credit. I mean, I think I think many of I my, think it's very enjoyable. I've always uh, enjoyed. Right, I his think writing. many of our students would would be able to understand that that, which is part part of his uh, ex- wonderful technique. Uh, of course, they they would never have heard of Michael Oakeshott. That would. Um, probably not. <laughs> Though my my students uh, had heard of, I told you, Immanuel Kant. They couldn't name two British authors of the 19th century. They couldn't name a novel by Saul Bellow. But when you ask them um, who wrote the Critique of Pure Reason, they could come up with Immanuel Kant. Mm-hmm. And, and that must have been because some of that stressed in Philosophy 101 at the university. I don't know. It's interesting, and, and anyway, my uh, my sense is that uh, well, uh, let let's go go a little deeper though with the uh, with the Epstein uh, piece uh, uh, about politics and about uh, politics being un, uninteresting except that uh, being in politics except to those who want power. Uh, that's a uh, that's a, an that's a level of discourse that you know. I, I, I suppose people aren't all that used to, and uh, so I, I don't know. I, I I think that's an empirical question. How how hard that would be for for, for my. Well, I chose it not because I right. thought it was esoteric and beyond uh, the uh, the literacy of ordinary students, but rather because it had some complexity of thought and it had a skepticism in it, which. Uh, is a well, well. See, that's where I, I'm not so sure that that my uh, community college students uh, didn't have complexity of thought or even uh-huh. complexity of language. There's plenty of irony in uh, in street smart kids who don't use the King's English. Uh, I, I I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is lack of information, basically, uh, for uh, disadvantaged students. One of the main things that your critics have um, 
used against you is your actual exemplification of items of cultural literacy that one would expect every uh, educated American to have in his repertoire. And uh, there are... Uh, uh, you list, you've got a list of such items. It runs about 500 or so, doesn't it? Uh, 5,000. 5,000. I got that all wrong. Uh, what are some such items? Just illustrate. Uh, I, I, that, that was 30 years ago. Now I have to uh, uh, almost. Uh, I uh, don't remember all the items, but I, I will say one thing about that. That's, I mean, in a general way, uh, uh, there are some that I myself might well disagree with right now mm-hmm. on there. However, uh, the complaints about the individual items was a facile way of dealing with the argument. Yeah, uh, Because, in f- fact, what was striking about all of this is that uh, nobody came up with either of the following two things. Nobody came up with uh, an argument that with a, an argument that said this analysis is wrong, uh, that would be difficult because it's been confirmed and reconfirmed by cognitive psychologists uh, across the board. the The second thing that didn't happen was that nobody came up with an alternative list uh, of any of any serious character. Says no, no, you you've got the you've got the list wrong, as it were. There were claims that there shouldn't be a list, of course, uh, but that is is not really a, a viable position because if we're talking about shared knowledge, it's obviously a, an extent of knowledge that has to be finite. And here's a, here's a list. Finite, you can you can describe what it is. Here are some items from a list not developed by you, but by um, a um, I don't know who he is. The name is Jonathan Y. Is identified as a Ph.D., um, and uh, it's uh, from some particular magazine. Um, but here are some of the items that he seems to include, and I'll just run through this list quickly. Would we expect most literate Americans to n- not be thrown by these terms? Absolute Zero, Alamo, Billy the Kid, Carpetbagger, um, let me see, um, Faust, uh, Gamma Rays, Homestead Act, Iago, uh, Jazz, Lame Duck, Manna from Heaven, a phrase, uh, Penis Envy, uh, and uh, Sea Legs. Um, I don't know this one. That sounds pretty good list to me. Does it? Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it, it's. I, I, I'd be surprised if they weren't on, on the core knowledge that they cultural literacy list of 5,000. Other items are Valhalla, Battle of Waterloo, Zeitgeist, and so on. Yeah. Where, now, I, I'm sorry, I've missed that. Where, where did it get, come from? Uh, well, I just found it on uh, the internet. It's um, um, an article from uh, uh, a journal called Psychoanalyst, uh, subtitled Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis, uh, Stuck in Relationships or Work? Question mark. And the question, the article is titled "Are You Culturally Literate?" and uh, it and then it does quote this fellow Jonathan Y, um, who raises, who offers all of those as items of cultural literacy, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they seem to be. I I uh, I think there was one there that I didn't recognize, but otherwise they seem fairly um, uh, obvious and comfortable. Yeah. Uh, 
But uh, I wonder if I'm sure that as our our listeners and we'll hear we'll hear this from them later would say that some of those items simply are too specialized and you don't need that. Besides, a very common argument you get these days is that if there's any particular concept or term that you don't know, you've always got Google at hand and you can instantly get everything you need by uh, much much quicker than by going to a dictionary. I think that's a, that's worth pausing on just for a moment to 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 ask if that's true. Yeah. Uh, it it seems, that, and, and I've talked to cognitive psychologists about this. It seems that uh, to the the people who can use Google best, and uh, for whom it's a tremendously powerful tool, are uh, people who are highly knowledgeable. Uh, and and what it does, it seems to exacerbate the difference in 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 knowledge yeah. among people uh, because those, it, it empowers them even more. The, it empowers the already empowered, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, whereas, uh, it, so that it, it, it emphasizes the, uh, the differences, educational differences. You have, of course, developed uh, a curriculum uh, which suits your concept of cultural literacy, and indeed there are many schools, over 700, I gather, around the country now using that curriculum, uh, that through the foundation that you established. We need to talk about all of that. However, I must make up for my sins. I'm very late for commercials because I was uh, I, I overlooked the last batch, uh, and uh, therefore we make up for that by working in some commercials right now, and then we'll do it again about six or seven minutes after that, and then we'll begin the clear. Here we go. And so far, of course, in our conversation with E.D. Hirsch, we've been talking about what's gone wrong in American primary education and how that's reflected even in higher education. Um, But you are, as I said in introducing you, the chairman and founder of a very important organization called the Core Knowledge Foundation. Um, We only have three minutes before we stop again for some commercials, then we'll be on schedule. But um, to begin with, and we'll do more with it uh, uh, later, what is the Core Knowledge Foundation? What is its um, announced purpose? What is its uh, extent? Uh, what is the extent of its influence? The uh, purpose is to encourage elementary schools to uh, adopt a coherent, uh, knowledge-rich curriculum. And by coherent, I mean one year builds on the next, so that you have to know what's being studied in first grade and in second grade and third grade so that teachers can can build on what's gone before. And you, you might assume, well, aren't the schools already doing it? And I think most people do assume the schools are already doing that, but they're not because of the ideas that we discussed earlier, namely progressive education, which holds that there should be no curriculum set in advance. You, you need to follow the interests of the child. So what we have now is, is therefore, in, in the elementary schools, an emphasis on uh, critical and creative thinking and no particular uh, sequence of, of knowledge is, is, is developed with any specificity uh, in the schools, which is, of course, the, the, in my opinion, the, the root cause of uh, not only the poor performance on average, but the... Uh, 
inability to, to narrow the gaps between demographic groups of students. So our aim at the Core Knowledge Foundation is to provide a model of uh, what a good elementary curriculum could be, it should be. And, uh, and there are hundreds of schools that have adopted it with, with high success, and, and with high success among uh, highly disadvantaged students. And you've uh, developed further materials for them. Uh. Yes. I, 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 unfortunately, we haven't, we, we're a very poor foundation, and, and, and we haven't had the, uh, the means to, to produce a, a full curriculum. Uh, we we have done so in uh, in language arts in the early grades. Let's talk uh, but, about that much more. We've got to pause right now, as I explained. But I also wonder about its connection with that great question about the adoption of core curriculum by state law, which about which there's been much controversy. We'll be directly back to E.D. Hirsch after this. In 1988, Hirsch founded the Core Knowledge Foundation, uh, a nonprofit organization in Charlottesville, Virginia, that publishes the Core Knowledge Sequence, addressing the subjects of language arts, history and geography, mathematics, science, music, and visual arts. Core Knowledge covers a specific body of knowledge for students in preschool through eighth grade. Hirsch also wrote the Core Knowledge Series, uh, for parents of primary school children, covering what students in a particular grade should know, such as what your first grader needs to know, and so on. Uh, is that uh, an accurate overview of what you've been doing? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Good let's, summary. Let's talk more about that. It's interesting that um, you divide the areas of cultural literacy into history and geography, mathematics, so, uh, language arts, history and geography, mathematics, science, music, and visual arts. I find the absence of uh, historical knowledge particularly distressing with my own college students, uh, and I'm sure you have found the same. Yes, and civics. Uh, and so uh, I, uh, it's been, it's, and people who have sent their children to these schools are extremely satisfied with, with them, and the children are very pleased with them. What do you insist upon, say, with regard to history, uh, as uh, represented in that curriculum? Well, it's it's essentially world history, but with a strong emphasis on the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, what can I say? I haven't got it in front of me, Milt, right right now. But it's a it's a very good, sound history curriculum uh, for elementary school. It's very similar to the kind of curriculum that uh, uh, children in private schools used to get. And of course, of course, you, there are two kinds of private schools. Uh, there, yeah. There's the kind that that that, that are the more old-fashioned, which which said you have to learn history, know the kings of England and the facts historical, and uh, the kind that said, oh no, it's important to know uh, uh, how people felt and what the large scale things were, and it's important to learn historical thinking. Uh, again, the, the, the critical thinking principle comes up as, a, as an alternative yeah. to learning facts. Of course, as uh, you had this work, uh, as you developed these materials, uh, you relied not merely upon your own universal knowledge, but rather upon 
uh, experts from those separate disciplines. That's right. Well, before that, we, to, to create the sequence that we did create, uh, there, was a, there was a huge conference that was about 150 uh, people involved in, in, in uh, working on a, a preliminary uh, sketch uh, that, that was theoretically based. That is, it, it was based on the idea, what should a high school graduate uh, know, which was essentially the cultural literacy list, uh, as it were, to turn, turn that into a coherent curriculum grade by grade. And, and you needed experienced teachers and, and people representing different uh, disciplines uh, to have some say in that, how it should be done. And that was the origin of the uh, core of the original cultural literacy or core knowledge sequence uh, of grades. Now it's pre-K through eight. We are heard, of course, by virtue of the internet all over the world, and somebody may be listening in Kuala Lumpur. But most of our listenership is here in the greater Midwest and in the Chicago area. Uh, did you, uh, what what schools are, of the seven hundred and fifty or so who followed that curriculum uh, are nearby? Uh, our present location. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I can tell you that, that how to find out. I'm I'm up here in Maine without a lot of yes, uh, I know you're on the data and so so on. So, uh, but if you there's a we have of course a website sure coreknowledge.org, and and there uh, you can find where uh, all the core knowledge schools are uh, state by state. Yeah, I think I will ask my engineer to go to Google. <laughs> I'm, rather, sure that, I'm sure there are one or two in Chicago. Well, let's go to coreknowledge.org and yeah. see what we've got in Chicago. He will report to me shortly. Uh, yeah. what, what do you have by way of teacher response, and what do you have by way of— Well, teachers love it, of course, because they are—there is very little turnover in core knowledge schools. The, the teachers— uh, that's, uh, why, what is there to, to dislike? The, the students are very engaged because, first of all, since the, the course is coherent, they're ready for the next. They're not bored and throwing spitballs because they don't understand what's going on. They are uh, engaged in, in very rich material that they're ready to learn because uh, there's a careful buildup year by year. And what do you have by way of a test result comparison between... Well, there we've got extremely good uh, test results. The, 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 the difficulty... Let, let me give you just one example. There yes, was please. A, there was a, uh, some experimentation of... There were 10 core knowledge schools. Uh, this is in, in New York City. Uh, uh, Joel Klein became persuaded uh, late in his uh, tenure as commissioner in, of schools in New York City it became persuaded to the sort of core knowledge principles that it became disillusioned with the progressive approach in language arts and reading scores uh, did not uh, budge much in uh, in the later grades in, in New York City. And so he um, said, well, let's try this core knowledge approach in 10 uh, early early grades in ten schools of New York City, and and he helped arrange that experiment, and and with ten sort of control schools, and uh, in the early uh, stages of of that experiment, which only lasted three years because then funding ran out, and, and Joe Joe Klein uh, resigned as uh, commissioner, but but uh, the 
results was quite stunning. I mean, the, the uh, core knowledge kids, well, the, the gains were reputed to be five times as great. And anyway, with a high degree of, uh, of uh, P, with, with, you know, very low P values, uh, pro- probability, mm-hmm. high probability of uh, uh, important, uh, significant advantage to the core knowledge students, which was not a surprise uh, to to me, but 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 the education community has not been eager. Uh, here's another example: uh, uh, when the new chancellor came in in New York City, she said, "Well, that that experiment was too small," and and went back to the old progressive ways. Um, so that still dominates in the in the schools of New York City. Beg pardon. The progressive approach still dominates in New York yes, schools. I would say so. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> There, there, uh, the the uh, Cornell's language arts, I think, is in sixty-three of the New York City schools, and it's uh, but it, but it's it was adopted uh, for the first three grades uh, by the state of New York, so that's that was good, and <laughs> and it was but but my complaint is that language arts is not enough. You need to uh, in the early grades you can include a lot of content and language arts, but but to neglect history, as you have mentioned, and to neglect the arts is a, is a grave misfortune. We have thousands of examples of cultural illiteracy. Uh, the Florida students, half of whom can't find their own peninsular state on a map, is uh, commonly mentioned, but it goes everywhere. Uh, with regard to wars, or you'd think that people would know the major wars that their countries have fought. I find not only ignorance concerning the Civil War, but even concerning World War II uh, as to who our enemies and who our allies were. Um, it's, it's sometimes almost unbelievable how much vacuity there is where elementary factual knowledge uh, should be stored. That's right. And, and, of course, it has no fault of the people we're complaining about. It's the fault of the education world. Well, except they also have parents, many of them. And well, yes, <laughs> but their parents, by now, uh, Milt, their parents are the products of the, the system we're discussing. I mean, with each passing decade, you you can't, when these children become parents, you can't expect them to teach their children what they don't know themselves. So. I, I must tell you a story. I'll try to make this a quick one. A good colleague of mine, very well-known political scientist, We've even published together, but I won't otherwise identify him. Uh, was called um, went went for uh, a year and a half to Sciences Po, uh, political science as part of uh, l'école des études en sciences sociales in Paris, uh, uh, and uh, took his family. He's a University of Chicago guy. He was then his wife and his three children. The children ranged in age from when they went uh, to eight. Uh, 13 and 17, something like that. And uh, we visited them uh, when they'd been there for just about a year. And I remember going out to dinner, a wonderful dinner in a nice Parisian uh, restaurant, and simply asked, how are the kids doing? And uh, both parents fell over themselves with enthusiasm, telling about uh, what the French lycée system had done for them. Their youngest was absolutely bilingual by now after just one year in French and English. Uh, the other two, the middle one, had had a considerable uh, psychological 
no, not considerable, but had significant sort of psychological botherment, if not t- total disorder, was an unhappy kid uh, facing uh, growing pains, surely. And she profited tremendously and was much happier and was doing much better in school. Even the oldest, who was virtually at the end of what we would consider the high school range, uh, was enthused in a way that he never had been before and was going on and indeed did, indeed did go on to Harvard. Uh, and uh, did ve- and uh, did very well. This story goes back some twenty years. You understand. Well, I, I was going to ask you when that story took place because it would not be such a happy story in France today. Because of the change in the French national system. That's um, right. As well, it changed in nineteen eighty nine. Was yeah. the beginning. And there was a, a new law passed, and and they abandoned the uh, coherent curriculum of the elementary school. It was an absolutely uniform curriculum as well across the it whole was. French yes. system. It, it was wonderful. It was the most egalitarian school system in Europe. Uh, it was it, France ranked right up there with, uh, and so did Sweden, with uh, Finland, uh, which is still the top country in Europe. And uh, it, it, was, it's a, it was a disaster that happened in the mm. French educational system. I subject I... I'm dealing with in my new book it's, because it's a perfect, uh, it's a it's a large scale experiment uh, almost. Uh, what happened to the French when they adopted progressive education? I didn't know that Finland led all the rest. What did the Finns know that well, uh, the, Finns, the French uh, don't the know? The Finns have done very well, very well for a long time, but it's a very small and very homogeneous yes. country. And, and so i I like to I like to compare the the bigger ones with bigger ones. How do you, well? How do you compare France to Germany well, I mean, and England? Uh, say France now. Uh, France uh, took a, a nosedive and uh, uh, in the PISA results, and uh-huh. and uh, Germany, uh, on the other hand, uh, suffered in two thousand something called PISA shock, and uh, that is their, their their scores were even lower than those of the United States in in two thousand. And they were so shocked by this that they said, well, no, we've got to quit, cut out this progressive education nonsense and start teaching kids all the same thing and define what it is we're teaching them. Had they done a lot of that progressive stuff? And, and, and Yeah, they've got, gone back to basics and, 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 and have done a lot better now. Uh-huh. So it isn't just a, an affliction suffered by Americans. It's, uh... no, that, that's the point. That's what I, I, I was making yesterday. It's, it's almost a test case for the theory of progressive education, but that, that when, when a country adopts it, it goes downhill. When it uh, reverses itself, it goes uphill. Is it an east-west? And, and if it never did it at all, it's doing very well indeed, like the Asians. Is it an east-west difference? That's what I was about to ask. Well, the, east-west uh, only. No, it, it isn't an east-west. I mean, I mean, Asia versus Western uh, countries. Yeah, I understand, but but it isn't. It isn't a cultural. It's an educational issue, not yeah. a cultural one. Because but they've they've they haven't flirted with progressive education in China, Japan, the Philippines, etc. Not really. No. In uh, matter of fact, the Americans tried to get when they were left uh, Japan. Um, that tried to get them to uh, adopt an American-style local uh, control version of education, and the Japanese said, "We don't think it'll work very well." And we, and, and so when the Americans left, they they went back to their national curriculum. Is the capital and, of all of this uh, uh, education at Columbia University? It, it, uh, you say, did it emanate from there? 
uh, is are they presently the, the ruling body? Yeah, yeah. I mean, historically, that was true. That is, in the twenties and thirties, when um, and even even earlier, when uh, Teachers College Columbia was so influential, that was the time when there was a great expansion of education schools in the United States, and most of the faculties uh, from those uh, of those schools then were educated by William Hurd Kilpatrick, uh, Dewey's. Uh, uh, colleague, and he was more Catholic than the Pope. Uh, uh, William Hurd Patrick. He 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 did not believe in a curriculum. He was very strict in what was acceptable and what wasn't. Well, what do you get in schools of education in this country generally these days? I know that Columbia you, remains. You get, you get the par- you get the Progressive Party line still all uh, all across the board. Uh, yes, I, I if you if you don't tow it, tow that line, you don't get tenure. Now, there are education schools that are trying to change that. Boston University certainly did and does, and uh, my own institution is trying to get more quantitative rather than qualitative in its approach to to these things. Uh, so, so there are little islands of exception, but uh, basically it's one thought world, the uh, world of... Uh, American education schools. Incredible. Um, I have the uh, the rundown on core knowledge schools in our <clears throat> part of the country. The number for the state of Illinois is zero. Oh no! That's that's what I'm told by. Uh, <laughs> really? It's, it's right off your website. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> there are several in Indiana. The closest to us is uh-huh. in Gary, Indiana. It's called the 21st Century Charter School. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a handful in Wisconsin as well. <laughs> well, uh, that's uh, surprising because uh, there used to be uh, some, I know, and as a matter of fact, there, there may be core knowledge schools that aren't listed on our website because uh, I know, uh, we, maybe you can find out from some of your listeners well, uh, where uh, they are. I, I have to say, when I said we're a poor foundation, uh, that we're also pretty uh, pretty bad on uh, on keeping up with data like this. Well, speaking of our listeners, of course, now is the time for me to invite <coughs> their response to what they've been hearing, um, and uh, whether by phone or by email. We tend to get more email in the middle of the day than we do phone, but uh, here's how you do either. Uh, for phone, it's 847-475-1590, 847-475-1590, and the lines are open at this moment. And for email, which is, of course, also available instantly, uh, the proper address is milt, M-I-L-T, at 1590wcgo.com. Milt at 1590wcgo.com. And we look forward to your contributions. Get them in right now. We shall return after this. And directly back to E.D. Hirsch, who, if you um, haven't caught on yet, is the chairman and founder of the Core Knowledge Foundation and is really the father of the whole uh, critical knowledge um, concern. Uh, his um, famous book, Cultural Literacy, is just the first of some five or six that followed. Uh, and the foundation continues to do very important work. Uh, E.D. Hirsch is, of course, located as Professor Emeritus uh, of Education and Humanities at the University of Virginia. Um, let me read you my first email because it covers something I should have 
persisted on and give and sought greater clarity on earlier uh, when I mentioned it, but I didn't uh, press you on this. Um, this listener in Columbus, Ohio, uh, Tanya, uh, says, I can't figure out exactly what common core is. Can your guest make it simple for us? So we need the dif- differentiation between your uh, foundation, which is the Core Knowledge Foundation, and the Common Core Program, which is legislated by states and which and on which there's great continuing controversy between, quote, liberals and conservatives who stand on both sides of the issue. Um, can you, would you clarify that? Yeah, the, 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 I think the greatest clarification of, uh, of the uh, core, the, the so-called core curriculum of this, of, of the uh, common core standards uh, and the uh, core knowledge effort is that the core knowledge effort is an exemplary curriculum it shows you, uh, it gives you an example of what a, co- a good, solid, coherent curriculum uh, looks like. Uh, the core, uh, the state common core standards are just that. They're standards, and they are not a curriculum. They don't tell you. Uh, they, they say you should have greater complexity in writing, and you should know the uh, founding documents of the United States, and you should have maybe study some Shakespeare or something like that, but it doesn't tell you specifically uh, what belongs in first grade, second grade, third grade, and so on. So that's the big difference between what a standard (laughs) is, which is something vague and allows you to do any number of different things. And uh, so you can have common standards without having a common curriculum. And so standards in the United States, I I hold, uh, is a kind of cop-out because it, for that very reason, it doesn't really give guidance to content. Uh, your focus, of course, is on the preparatory schools, on the elementary schools and... On, on the, that's right. The on, middle on schools the, and even the high schools. The early grades, yes. Yeah. Um, of course, what I've been particularly aware of is uh, the university level where I've been all of my professional life, at Yale, at uh, Dartmouth, and at the University of Chicago. Um, and I'm very aware of a kind of dumbing down, to use the simple basic language, of the curriculum um, in universities and colleges. Um, You mentioned Shakespeare just now. The fact is, as the National Association of Scholars, of which I am a very active, a fairly active member, and on one of whose boards I sit, the National Association of Scholars, which is a self-defined group of educationally conservative university professors, uh, has a study showing that Shakespeare is... Um, much more honored in the breach than in the observance these days in uh, English departments the countrywide. Mm. Um, so whatever is wrong in the lower schools has by now been um, transferred to the so-called higher ones as well. Perhaps well, it, that's right. Where, where, how else would it happen? I mean, you, it's hard to have a good high school uh, curriculum if, in fact, students aren't prepared for high yeah. school. And it's hard to have a good university curriculum if students aren't prepared for that. But th- but then again, uh, English departments have kind of lost their way. Well, they are an interesting uh, institution. I know that there's a great deal of intramural uh, fighting in some of those departments. Here is a, um, um, a full email from David of Elk Grove Village, that's one of our suburbs, who says... I'm a high school teacher, and I'm shocked at how woefully unprepared are so many of my students. 
beyond Presidents Obama, Bush, and Clinton, and maybe Lincoln and Washington, they're seemingly unaware of much of our history. I had a student who mentioned General Useless S. Grant. I was pleased that he had an idea of who Grant was, even if he did butcher the name. <laughs> well. Uh, well, there's a good deal of humor that comes from these levels of ignorance, but they're also in some ways rather heartbreaking. Um, I remember uh, another discovery I made uh, during my teaching. One course <clears throat> that I taught in my last five or six years before I took retirement uh, was one that I actually taught at the very beginning of my academic career at Yale, simply the psychology of religion. Um, and uh, But I did this as a seminar for both graduates and uh, senior undergraduates. And at one one day, just talking with some 15 students around the table, we were uh, I had had them reading uh, William James's Varieties of Religious Experience. And I just, um, um, uh, in passing, uh, made the offhand remark, of course, the contrast between him and his brother is so marked, as I'm sure you would all recognize. And students looked rather puzzled. And I said, well, his brother, uh, don't you all know who William James's equally famous brother was? And no, they didn't. A long, rather embarrassing silence until one of them said, well, wasn't, didn't he do something uh, about a screw? <laughs> that was the turn of the screw, one of Henry James's novels. And that was the extent. So whatever happened in the English department to which all of them had recourse, uh, they weren't doing any Henry James. I wonder who else has been dropped from the literary curriculum. Well, that's it. I, I think you can't depend on uh, common knowledge uh, much anymore. And uh, and I think that uh, when I said that, I, I thought English departments uh, have lost their way a bit in the last few decades. It's because there was an understanding, oh, maybe 25, 40 years ago, anyway, 40 years ago, that uh, what we were engaged in and I'm, of course, from an English department, uh, was, uh, it, it, it had to do with something called the canon. Yeah. And, uh, of course, there was a reaction against the uh, so-called, you know, the Anglophile and male canon, and that was... Dead white male. But there, but there was no canon put, no real canon put in its place. And that's a problem because if English departments aren't dealing with the national culture in some way, then what is their function? You have, after all, English departments are very big in the United States and in England, and French departments are very big in France, and German departments are very big in Germany. That, that's not an accident. It's because uh, traditionally they had something to do with uh, helping sustain and, and improve the national culture. Well, I'll give you Rosenberg's two-cent theory on all of this. There are many things that drive down the content and the, the rigorousness of the university and college curriculum. One of them is the, need, is the competition for students and the transformation of the college course from something with some rigor and with some strong demands upon the student, uh, transformation from that level to the level of, um, dare I call it, uh, what it really is, I think, namely entertainment. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's some of that. I'm sure 
That's important. Uh, and, but, uh, what I want to know is why isn't there why isn't there a little bit more discussion anymore about about the canon and about uh, national culture? Well, there should be it, much it, more it's discussion. Considered, well, for one thing, it's considered uh, uh, inappropriate to talk about a national culture. It's much more important to talk about global affairs. And, yes, and in, in this age of political correctness, it's uh, yeah, it's right. all wrong. Yeah, yeah, and but but that's a problem because the global is is multinational and multicultural. But you can't have a multi without the things that they're multi of. So. One effort that was intended to—it's incoherent. One one effort that was intended to plug that gap, and I talked on this very program or on the preceding program uh, with just when it was getting started with the people who were starting it, uh, and there is the so-called Library of uh, of America, uh, which takes the great classics, and it's now got to the level of modern classics. They've just done a Bellow volume, I believe, and I think another uh, volume on with. Uh, the novels of Philip Roth, and we've got Melville and uh, and Walt Whitman and uh, all the boys. I'm afraid not as many of the girls, but um, but still, that uh, Library of America is supposed to be uh, a resource for our common American culture, for the literary side of that culture. Yes, and, and don't you think it's a good thing? I think it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, but it, but it has not solved the problem apparently. Well. Uh, well, it, the Library of America isn't isn't the text, is it, for uh, English departments these days? I'm if sure it's not. At, if you if you look at the actual offerings in English departments, they they're very uh, diverse. They're not uh, focused on any sort of common enterprise. Well, there's a strong strain these days to go toward um, um, people who are not dead white males who That's are right. from. Um, other ethnicities, uh, and who are alive, and yeah, but, who are leftish in their general disposition as well. But but it, it 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 really is a contradiction, isn't it, to say that we're studying other people's culture, but we have none of our own. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a it's a terrible, um, it's a terrible evasion. It's yeah, it's an evasion, and exactly. it's politically yeah. fostered. I I fear yeah. its roots are political. Uh, we pause. A quick round of commercials, and then back to more email, and we hope uh, for some good uh, uh, voice uh, content as well. That is telephone calls. For telephones, the number 847-475-1590. 847-475-1590. And for email, milt at 1590wcgo.com. Milt at 1590wcgo.com. Right back after this. And directly back to E.D. Hirsch, Jr. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I've got a gift from our uh, engineer, uh, the same fellow, Mike, who uh, looked up the Cordollage schools in Illinois, Indiana, and wa- Wisconsin. And he suggests uh, one Gilbert and Sullivan tune, which is almost a caricature of what we're talking about, but it's uh, a moment's amusement in the midst of what is otherwise a fascinating discussion, but in some ways a depressing one. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England and Dakota fights historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I am very well acquainted too with matters mathematical. I understand equations both the simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I am teeming with a lot of news. Ooh. 
Ah, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. I am very good at integral and differential calculus. I know the scientific names of beings and immaculous. In short, in matters vegetable, animal, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. Now, you're not really looking for that degree of cultural literacy, are you? Well, it's very interesting that uh, if you put that song in context, of course, Major General Stanley was not a very good general. No, he wasn't. That was, that was the whole point. And, uh, but he, he knew all this book learning, but he didn't know anything about military strategy. And, and so uh, he was uh, in trouble. Now, that fit in perfectly well with the... Uh, the onset of uh, what the progressives were complaining about, and reasonably so, and uh, so it was actually an anti. Uh, Gilbert was mocking all that book learning, mm-hmm. which of course was a, it was true. Uh, but the so so that's a very and that was very amusing to his audience and to everybody. Because Gilbert was a very well educated man, mock, <laughs> mocking being well educated, to say the least. Yeah. And, and uh, anyway, so uh, it's, it's very amusing. On the other hand, it, there's nothing wrong with knowing the names of the beings and animalculus and to uh, know integral and differential calculus. No, I wish I did. <laughs> um, here's another serious email. I think that one reason for our decline in education is that there's really no reason to improve oneself if there's no longing for basic necessities. It's really difficult to be poor in 2015 America, or to be hungry, or to lack heat and air or running water. Everything is done for us. So what's the impetus when simply existing is so easy to do? In the past, our very survival was an endeavor requiring great effort. Naturally, we had to improve our minds and our bodies when it was entirely possible to starve to death or to spend a life in poverty. This is a listener down in Indianapolis. Well, I, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say about that. I, I, I know an awful lot of hardworking young people and uh, energetically pursuing their studies. And uh, the ones I'm worried about aren't those. They're, they're eager to get into first-class universities. The students I'm worried about are the ones who aren't studying and don't try because they uh, haven't much hope. And he's saying that uh, uh, the real experience of true poverty would be a spur toward higher education, toward a more effective education. No, I'm not sure there's enough energy left to do that. I mean, no, that's right. There isn't much evidence for that. And and there are plenty of high poverty uh, kids who do struggle, very, very exceptional uh, kids that, that get along. But I... I, I on, on average, the, my sense is, and and the and the evidence shows that the, the children who don't know uh, very much and who are, don't get along very well in school are those who haven't been taught. Uh, of course, we've got some extra problems in the way. Um, these days, it's, one has to be so careful talking about uh, the black portion of the population and not the total black portion, but rather the lower class, working class portion in the ghetto. Uh, it's a, it's a, one isn't even supposed to speak of ghetto, rather. 
uh, we're supposed to use the euphemism inner city. Oh, at any rate, it's clear who I'm talking about. And we know that one prevailing attitude there is almost anti-educational because that is, quote, playing Whitey's game. Well, that's right. But that's a defensive that's a defensive attitude that that can be overcome. I mean, that's an attitude that grows out of hopelessness. Yeah. And uh, and uh, you, you don't want to leave it there and say it's in the culture. It's it, it, it's the hopelessness that needs to be changed. And that can be ch- that can be done. It, 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 it you take a a 5-year-old, 6-year-old or, or starting earlier, 4-year-old uh excited by school and learning in a coherent way and learning effectively, those children are turned on. They're not turned off. Is it demonstrable that you've got happier kids in your schools than in oh, Well, I think ones? so. I mean, it's, it's, it's demonstrated to me and it's demonstrated to the kids in the schools uh, that, that, are, that have a coherent and rich uh, curriculum mm-hmm. that they're happier. Well, let, let me give you one concrete example. There's not too far away. It, 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 I, my geography of Minnesota is is uh, not very keen, so I don't know how far away from Chicago uh, the the town of Rochester, Minnesota. Well, is. Well, that's where uh, the Mayo Clinic is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It, well, that's a, it's a it's it's quite a sizable town, and it has uh, there's a Cornell school that that does better than any of the other public schools in in the in the city and um there was a radio program that i was invited to listen to uh, where it was discussed whether that should become the citywide curriculum and of course that raised a great stink uh no uh, and it wasn't going to go anywhere but in the discussion of uh, uh, why it didn't go anywhere it, it appeared that there were even though a school of what 500 kids there were a thousand uh, I can't remember whether it was 1,000 or 2,000 uh, kids on the, on a waiting list, the parents eager to get them into the school. So there was a great demand on the part of the parents uh, for that kind of school. And of course, it was a happy school. It was they were they were doing something that was the way any school could really be, any neighborhood school could be, if there were a sequenced and and coherent curriculum. Uh, we are uh, right on the dot for our last round of commercials. Uh, quickly, we'll run through those and then back to E.D. Hirsch. How to improve the quality of American uh, secondary and primary education is what we've been talking about with a man who's done as much as anyone else, more than just about everybody and anybody else, uh, to do just that, namely E.D. Hirsch. Um, And I do want to say to our listeners, um, I I take this to be a very important program and a wonderful contribution uh, from ED. And I say to our listeners, if you want to um, uh, share this program with your friends who are not hearing it, simply direct them to our podcast. And this will probably be up by tonight, the whole program, and certainly by tomorrow. You get to the podcast simply by going on the computer or whatever instrument you're using to a WCGO, uh, and uh, the rest is evident. Uh, the podcasts are available. You can get the podcast for this very program. It will be there uh, on into eternity, or eternity minus one, I suppose. Um, and with that, Don, we go to our next email. Uh, do you think that having so many families 
in which both parents work full-time might have something to do with intellectual development. It seems that most of our children are being raised by others who naturally wouldn't have their best interests in mind and might not be as qualified uh, an early educator as would be a parent. There's a thought. I often hear things like that, and and of course, I'm sure there's some truth in it, a good deal of truth in it, and what I, though, have focused on is uh, not how to measure the the causes, but to say, well, what can the schools do that they used to do a lot better, uh, and uh, to improve the situation, because what the schools do is in the hands of the schools. What parents do is not in anyone's hands but the parents, and certainly uh, I'm no advocate of of going into people's houses and telling them how to raise their their children. Uh, I, I think that the schools can do a great deal more now in the, in the way of providing the factual knowledge. And by the way, factual knowledge doesn't is is not in any sense opposed to so-called deep understanding and and thoughtful uh, learning uh, that is needed year by year in, in order to to make a a good citizen and an effective. Uh, um, effective person in the economic as well as... And, the and, and you need the factual knowledge and indeed the sheer, vo- the mere or sheer vocabulary that enables you to go deeper into uh, questions and to uh, get to uh, uh, a level of understanding that really is creative or really is advantageous for you. That's right. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because vocabulary is a very... Everybody understands that there's... Uh, a correlation between vocabulary and success in life, and uh, in fact, there's a there's a high cor- there's an important point eight correlation between vocabulary and IQ, which is no surprise because vocabulary is a part of a, a standard IQ mm-hmm. test. Yes, and uh, the the uh, focus on vocabulary is useful because you can't gain a large vocabulary without a a uh, coherent education. Uh, that's the best way, uh, the, the, the only really effective way to gain it, uh, is, a, is a knowledge-rich and coherent uh, curriculum in the schools. I, I keep mentioning that word coherent because one thing builds on another and prepares you for the next thing uh, that you're learning. Everybody understands that in math, that you have to have addition before multiplication. But it's also the case that you need stepping stones of, of uh, knowledge to uh, to gain more. And and while you're doing that, if you're doing that effectively, you're gaining a big vocabulary effectively. Um, a small uh, uh, datum from my uh, limited field of social psychology. Bob Zients, years ago, examined the basis for a well-known correlation within families that have... Uh, multiple kids. Namely, the firstborn tends to test somewhat higher on intelligence and maybe even does somewhat better in life. Why? asked science. And uh, through uh, uh, procedures I won't try to, uh, uh, to talk about in any detail, 
but with some good statistical controls and so on, he uh, demonstrates to his own satisfaction, and I think to mine when I read this uh, work, that um, the difference is that they have more contact with adults, uh, <laughs> namely with their parents. The firstborn will have more contact with his parents or her parents and with their friends, for that matter, than will later born. And it's contact with parents who've got the vocabulary and have got more knowledge than you have, which tends to help you acquire more knowledge and more vocabulary and motivate you to do so. Yeah. Well, there you are. And it's very credible, isn't it? And uh, it seems to be, yes. Yeah. And so wh- why doesn't the school act like the, like the older adult instead of coming down to the level of the child? Well, the trouble may lie in the word itself, the word education. If you do its etymology, educare seems to mean to tease out or bring out that which is already known. There are two meanings. It's interesting. It's a word that has two meanings, even in the original Latin. One is to, it follows this sort of progressive idea. Yeah. Which is to tease out. Uh, but, but the other is to train, to train up. So it's to lead, you know, to lead out. I I think we have to blame it on Plato. Uh, (laughs) In in the the dialogue with the Mino. uh, That's right. You demonstrate that the slave boy really knows mathematics. Right. uh, If you tease it out from him. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One last... One last but never email. mind, whatever the, the, the old Romans and the old Greeks said, yeah. uh, we, we, we know pretty well that, that uh, the learning of a language, uh, which is certainly the, the learning of the common of the standard language, which yeah. everybody agrees is the, is the duty of the elementary schools. Here's an email from Molly here in Chicago, and it speaks for me. I think she's absolutely right. She says, I thank you for bringing Dr. Hirsch to us today. This is a topic of vital importance. It should come as no surprise that we are on the decline as a nation when our educational system is in such poor shape. It's a tragedy to which our politicians pay plenty of lip service, but we see no action. Um, are there politicians who are seized with real concern over these matters? Uh I, I think that everybody on the left and the right in politics sees it as a problem. What I don't see much of is a lot of understanding. See, the political aspects of the problem tend to be whether you should encourage more charter schools or whether they're a threat to the, the regular public schools. And uh, I think that is a, an, a very important issue. But it it doesn't get to the heart of what either the charter schools or the regular public schools ought to be doing. What is at the heart is what they do in the schools of education in the teachers' colleges. That's right. That's at the heart, and also the willingness of of a school or a district or even a state to adopt a curriculum. There's been there's been political timidity there. Because every time you, if you adopted a curriculum district-wide in Chicago, there would be a hue and cry, as you well know. From the teachers' union, as a matter of fact. Well, not just them, from from everyone. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> everyone is, is something you're not used to. Now, I, I, there used to be a, you, quietly, there was a curriculum in the schools before the progressive movement began. 
there was, I mean, it's American as cherry pie to have a curriculum. It's just, it hasn't been so since the uh, uh, 50s and 60s, and after progressivism essentially took over. And that's, the, so that's what I see as the real problem. And if, if one could speak politically, if one were willing to say politically that, yes, our district should have a district-wide curriculum, and therefore, children who are moving around from school to school, especially poor kids, would have some coherence in their education. That that would transform the uh, the, the system because if, if teachers would build on on one another's work from year to year, which was is very important, and they they would mm-hmm. teach better also because they could be trained if there were a curriculum. You could be trained in in what it was that you were supposed to be teaching the children. Well, Don, we are out of time, and uh, I thank you most sincerely. This has been a very valuable conversation uh, for our listeners, I'm sure, Uh, and I've enjoyed it tremendously and learned from it, Uh, and you are still teaching. You're still teaching me. Thank you so much for joining us Well, the thanks are mutual, Milt. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Uh, Well, I hope that we'll be able to do something like it again soon. And with that, we'll close down.